I'm Peter Holliday, and this is The Land Behind, a photography podcast devoted to cultivating a deeper understanding of the relationship between perception and place. My guest today needs little introduction, the British documentary photographer Shan Davey. From my flat in Helsinki, I joined Shan at her home in rural Devon to discuss how Shan's faith in humanity continues to shape her perception as a psychotherapist turned photographer. With reference to Shan's beautiful photographs, we explore the restorative power of gardening during times of crisis. Throughout our conversation, we touch on the relationship between trauma and hope, Shan's life as a mother, and the ways in which Buddhism has influenced her artistic practice. Meanwhile, I consider what a visit to the dentist taught me, as a photographer myself, about what it means to live a life subject to the phenomenon of time. As my discussion with Shan began, I was recovering from a sudden visual migraine, the second one I've ever had in my life, perhaps brought on by the prior research that these wonderful discussions demand. It was an interesting experience to say the least, and because of this, I almost agreed with Shan to postpone our conversation to another day, but since my symptoms were already subsiding, in the end we decided to give it to go and press record anyway. The result was a conversation that was not only longer than I had planned, but one that became far deeper than I could have imagined. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did having it. And if you listen closely enough, you can hear the birds singing throughout Shan's garden. So, without further ado, my conversation with Shan Davy now begins. Shan Davy, it's very nice to speak with you this evening and I'm very grateful for your time. Hi, Peter. What I enjoy most about these recordings, other than the actual conversations themselves, is the amount of prior research that they demand. And what is especially interesting about your path, as I've come to understand it, is that you previously worked as a psychotherapist before graduating in 2016 with a Master's in Fine Art in Photography from the University of Plymouth. At what point in your life did you decide you wanted to be a photographer and... What way is your in what way is your ongoing photographic practice related to your previous career as a psychotherapist? Describe who you are and tell us a bit about your journey. Well, that's a big question. Um, so um, I recognize that Having, I mean, the, the big moment was when I went to see the um, artist Louise Bourgeois at her retrospective at the Tate. I had no interest really in creativity until I left that exhibition. When I was in the exhibition, I can remember going from installation to installation, just really quietly observing everything. Not feeling very much, but it was when I left. It was like an absolute bomb dropped inside me. And I um and I was really emotional. And I said to my partner at the time, I've got to do something creative. I realized that how extraordinary all her you know what she did was extraordinary she commute she was able to transmit and and share 
everything about, you know, so much about her history. And anyway, so that's what happened. And it was like a transmission. You know, she just kind of opened up that kind of channel between the heart and the intellect, spirit, whatever. And it was like, here you go. I had no idea what that would look like. And then two years later, for some reason, I picked out the camera. But she's but, uh, she's working with sculpture. Everything. She was sewing and sculpture and, you know, it almost feels like this, you know, she was making, gathering up different materials and collage. I mean, she was doing everything. But, you know, I just, I, I didn't know. So I didn't know. I mean, I had done a, a my first degree was in fine art painting. So clearly there was something going on for me many, many, many years ago. So it took me a couple of years. And for some reason, I wish I can remember the point where I thought, oh, it's the camera. So annoying. My memory fails me. Anyway, it was the camera. And it was... It was just really perfect. So what year was this? So that was probably... Oh my God, no idea now. But I've been taking pictures for about, I guess, nine years? Nine years, nine, ten years now. So you have a whole other life before photography as well. Yeah, massive life. And I think, so, you know, um, everything that happened prior to my taking pictures is embedded in my work. Mm -hmm. And is material for all the work that I make. And, um, you know, it was just like, oh, my God, it was like massive falling in love, you know. And we know that uh, there was something really particular, whether it's writing or painting, when you make something. Uh, it's... Um, it is like a falling in love, isn't it? You just want to do it all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something then, unconditional about it too. Yeah, it's like me, you know. It's all. It was just me. It was mine, and yeah. And so you studied fine fine art painting, and then that, and after some time after that, you trained as a psychotherapist. Oh no! Then I went on to do a social policy degree. Mm -hmm. And, but it was really important all those years, you know, my childhood was, was spent in and out of homeless accommodation, ter really uh, terrible poverty, in fact, in the 70s. A lot of mental health, chronic uncertainty, um, sexual abuse. I mean, it was not, it seems to be, I, I kind of traversed the whole realm of mental health, really. Mm -hmm. It was kind of madness. And so when I left home, I just so kind of, you, when you, you, as an, you experienced it yourself or yeah, you, you observed all it. Of it? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I really know. Experienced it. And I think, so when I left home without understanding it or knowing why, I had to get away from my family. So I really very rarely saw my family again. And I was on my own and it felt like a kind of, you know, then I got into all the kind of early 90s rave culture which was super fantastic to hear music I loved for the first time. 
and I, I, I identified it with it very strongly and I danced and danced um, through those years. And so that was a really important time for me. And actually, you know, even talking about it now, it's a very creative time. I was surrounded by creatives making that whole scene in the kind of, you know, late 80s, early 90s. It was a really exciting time. And um, because of my age, I'm 58 now, when I start talking about my life, it feels like it's endless. You know, so when you're talking about your 30s, you've only got to cover a few years, and now I'm just going to go, oh, you know, it's like my whole biography feels a bit intense and sometimes overwhelming. But anyway, all this stuff, I went on to start a social policy degree because I was really um, uh, very passionate about social inequality, politics, and, you know, even the, the whole rave culture, we had um, the criminal justice bill, Michael Howard, um, with the um, with Thatcher's government, the Home Secretary, you know, it's like there was so much going on. It was a really active, rebellious time, and it was a time of resistance. Mm -hmm. All feels a bit flatlining now. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was a time of resistance, and of course, I had a lot of resistance in me and about resistance about my childhood, clearly, you know, and all this energy and all this anger. Mm -hmm. And so, I had to kind of, I was mobilizing it politically. Um, but that just kind of wore thin because I was mobilizing it externally and I had to actually go inside and mobilize it. Mm -hmm. um, so I went into counseling and then, then I found myself in the Tibetan Buddhist monastery where I was very fortunate to have some extraordinary teachers, Tibetan really high, mm -hmm. uh, Tibetan Buddhist masters and then I found myself on a um, psychotherapy training and it was kind of a fusion of western psychology and Buddhist um, philosophy and that kind of took me up into my kind of mid-30s late 30s and everything was like it was just a constant inquiry how to be here how to connect you know I'm trying to understand what my purpose was to, about being here um so that is kind of you know that's kind of took me up to where I am now I guess when I made that decision to give up psychotherapy is when I was seeing my um it was an Iranian guy who was an acupuncturist and he said why are you a psychotherapist and I said well I need the money he said the money will come if you do what you love it was like another transmission just as when I went to see the Libby's bourgeois retrospective it was a transmission mm. when you get a transmission you know it in your whole being you embody something you and you really you know when, when it you, when it drops in and you've got no choice it's a signpost mm -hmm. 
you yeah. if you don't run with it, you know that things aren't going to work out because you're just given something. Mm-hmm. You're kind of given a kind of message, and the, and I knew it. It was like it dropped in, and I believed it. So I went home and I said, "It's finished. I'm no longer a psychotherapist." Nine months later, I gave up the work and committed to what I love. And you graduated from your first degree in photography in 2014. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a master's of art. That was an MA in photography with David Chandler. Yeah, yeah. at the University of Plymouth as well. Yeah, because what happened was I was living in Brighton, which was my hometown. I applied to Brighton University and they turned me down to do the degree which was an absolute blessing because otherwise I wouldn't have left Brighton. So, and I kind of knew that if I got into that course, we wouldn't leave to come to the West Country. So I didn't get in. We came to the West Country and I I went to the nearest college, which was Plymouth, and landed in one of the most extraordinary master's programmes, which doesn't exist anymore. But I was extraordinarily fortunate to have these teachers mm-hmm. who I just couldn't I mean I just couldn't get enough of it I mean I was going every time I just went into college it was couldn't wait to get on the train and be you know I was thriving where did you grow up by the way in Brighton okay in Brighton so you received yeah. these teachers as a transmission too, as a certain type yeah, of gift. Yeah, I mean, every, I mean, I was meant to be there with them. Mm. So there's a real I mean, spiritual. There's a real spiritual dimension to your thinking. Everything is spiritual. Mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, I just think, uh, you know, when things aren't working out, it's because. I've just kind of lost my path and I can feel now when I'm on the right path because everything feels, things yeah. keep happening. As Absolutely. my friend, as someone said to me the other day, and now you can see the angels cross your path. Mm. And I said, actually, that's a lovely way of putting it because they keep offering you things. And it's like, oh. But you, you're, you're drawing most of your spiritual energy from the, from the Buddhist tradition. What, what type of, what Buddhist tradition specifically? Well, it's the Kagyu lineage and it's Tibetan Buddhism, but I don't think I'm drawing necessarily from Buddhism because in many ways I don't compartmentalise anything. The Buddhist tradition, the philosophy, is gives you a very clear um, steps towards uh, reconnection, towards love, towards kind of, you know, getting that highway between your intellect and your heart kind of moving mm-hmm. and intact. So it gave me very clear instruction when I was really, really in a shocking state in my kind of early 30s, late 20s. So it gave me a home at, in the monastery. I didn't live there, but I was going there for practice. I wasn't a very good practitioner. I just felt really, I just loved it. I loved, you know, anyway, I loved the community and I laughed a lot. I was pretty lazy at practice, still am. But um, it wasn't about that. Yeah. So you found a sense of openness there and a letting go. Yeah, I loved it. 
I just felt really accepted. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't have a family. And I was I was kind of looking around for families. And um, not consciously, of course, but it was a really healthy one. And was there a moment? It seems it sounds like you've you've come from a place of place of pain. And was there a was there is there has there been any moment in your in your spiritual path, so to speak, where you've had some sort of grand epiphany, this moment of enlightenment that many Buddhists speak of? No. no. So you haven't had that. That's no. intense epiphany. No, no that so would be nice. So is it, what, what's the what's the experience been then? Has it been more of a gradual? Yeah, I growth? think everything is. I mean, we can get kind of like caught up in believing that if you do a big chunk of work, then you're going to see the light. But actually, yeah. for me, it's everything's in, incremental and it's moments, isn't it? Life isn't. Life is only about moments. Yeah. We get hung up, and I've got to be happy, and it's got to last X, Y, Z. But it's not. It's just moments. In the way that when you're unhappy, we get caught up thinking that's going to last forever. Absolutely, yeah. You know, within the unhappiness, we'll have shards of kind of joy and just moments. They'll always be there. Absolutely. Yeah, during the pandemic, um, well, it it happened before the pandemic, actually. But I began uh, reading a, a lot about the Zen tradition and a lot of actually 20th century Japanese philosophers, too. Um, wow. from a school known as the Kyoto School. Right, and okay. they obviously have their different philosophies on enlightenment. Some believe in in that great epiphany and then others believe that it's a, a gradual process. And yeah, they all speak about the, these things in different ways. But yeah, during the pandemic, I, I was meditating on a daily basis, um, quite, or at least trying to, with no teacher at all. Um, I don't right. know how, I don't know how, dangerous that is but yeah um, nothing dangerous about slowing down no absolutely and re- and finding your center again as well i think when you do have those moments of anxiety of when your core begins to shake so to speak mm. it's about finding the space to f- just to step back a little bit and find your center again you don't have to be meditating to do that even just you know going for a hike and and or going for a walk can be good enough for that, but um Yeah, completely. I think um I think it's a conscious intention to change your space, stop um looking outwards. Absolutely. And you can do that in many, many ways, whether it's uh, you know, people find many ways of doing that. And so how does photography fit into this practice of slowing down and refocusing your centre. It's funny because I've just been a bit like, because I'm working on this new piece of work, I've just spent the day with this wonderful photographer and friend. I, be, I belong to a, a, a group of photographers called the Emmas, and it's Clementine Schneiderman, Alice Tomlinson, Leo Ribeira, um, Alice Sue, Abby Trader-Smith. I hope we're all there in there. da 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 Anyway, so Clementine, she's based in Paris. And anyway, she came to see me last night. And so she came all the way down to Devon. And I've just spent the whole day with her just talking photography. And I just felt, today I felt really inspired why I take pictures. 
and um, so it's a good time to ask. Um, I don't even know what the question was. Suddenly transported. Yeah, how to... has um, in what way is photography a, a medit meditative practice to you, and in what way does it perhaps help you refocus your own sense of centerness, so to speak? I'm not sure if it does actually, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if it. I'm not sure if it does, but what it does is oh, it just connects me to love. Yeah. Everything's about love. Yeah, yeah. Of course it is. It's like when you don't love, if you don't love your partner, you feel sick. Mm -hmm. You don't love your children if you don't love walking, if you don't love photography. Don't do it. And so this group of photographers is... Yeah. Is that the group of photographers that you've been collaborating on pictures... From the garden with? Yeah, we just talk, no, well, no, it was not actually, but we just talk about work and um, practice. And sometimes we go meet up at Martin, Martin Paz at the, um, at the foundation that he set up. He's been really generous with that. And um, so it's just a very useful um, platform for us to go and you know, share book ideas and edits and stuff like that. And, um, but photography isn't particularly stabilizing, but what it does is just makes me really happy. Yeah, there's, just, a, there's, a, sim makes, there's a simple pleasure. Yeah, it's a simple pleasure. It challenges me, it's very demanding. I have to really work very hard at it. And, but everything that I do in the working hard of it is deeply satisfying. I mean, you can tell just by looking at your images that you're very dedica dedicated to the craft, but at the same time, there's sort of an effortlessness to the way that your images appear as well. Well, it's interesting because I love myself to say I'm very serious about my work not so long ago. It's like serious. It's like, no, I'm actually very, very serious about it. And um, and that was quite a nice step to take. And even the work in the garden, it could look quite effortless. But it's so not effortless. <laughs> it's so difficult to make this work. It's so hard to make this work, but it looks effortless when you see the pictures. So how many of the yeah. pictures don't work then? Clearly, we're just, your audience, because well, you're, as a photographer myself, your audience never get to see the full, all the negatives. They only see it, an edit, a selection of, of the work that you've taken. So how, yeah, many, I mean, how many of the pictures work? Like what percentage of the pictures well, you know what? I don't, even, I don't see it like that because the the mechanism, the process is important as the finished image. So as I am taking each image, so I've got one person coming into the garden. I could take three, four rolls of film. But as I'm pressing that shutter, I'm moving closer and closer to closer to my to what needs to be shared or communicated. 
So they every single picture works. Mm-hmm. I may not use it, but they take me to where I need to go. So take us to your garden then. Where is it? My garden is in Devon. Dartington. I live on this estate called Dartington Hall. And it's equidistance between Exeter and Plymouth. It's a very old estate. And I rent my house. And I live here with my kids. I'm a single parent with children. And uh, so I'm really privileged to rent this house because I, we moved here. I lived with my partner at the time. We separated, but we moved here. And they were renting these houses. You can't get them for gold now. So I am now in this rented house. The back garden was completely overrun. I mean, I just abandoned it for a long time because it's too busy. And then my 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 um, I had this um extraordinary trauma that hit my family. This is really key to the project. I'm not going to share the trauma because I can't. But it was very traumatic, and I was um. It was just just after lockdown. And so anyway, I was stuck in this hideous place. And then my son came home. And he'd been in a Buddhist monastery for some time. And he said to me in the kitchen, why don't we turn our back garden? Make it so beautiful that people want to be photographed by you. So this is your son, Luke? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was another transmission, one of those moments. And I just said, yes. So if you could see our back garden, it's not even very big. It was like in such a state. But the interesting thing was, in that moment, is interesting for me, was I said yes. And I believed something without even consciously knowing I was believing in anything at all. But I just said, yes, let's do that. And so this and what what this was after the first lockdown, or yeah, so twenty twenty, yeah, mm-hmm. and so people were just um, still very anxious and very cautious. People weren't meeting indoors. But I live. It's really interesting how where my um, garden is situated. So there's a kind of two foot high garden wall. And people walk past my garden, kind of in the countryside, on on this estate. So people come here all the time to to go for for a swim in the river at the bottom or walk their dog. And there's kind of lots of like little theatres, all sorts of kind of things going on around. It was an old campus, arts campus. It's it's where Falmouth University was was, situated. it, anyway, that was here and it, it moved out of here, I think, about eight years ago. So it was an old campus, arts campus. And so people constantly walking past our garden wall. Anyway, I I don't quite know what to tell you about this project because um, there's a kind of very big philosophy and practice to the work we're making. 
So I, I kind of struggled to really be articulate and very clear about it. But the whole project is a heart practice. It's everything that's happened in my life is manifested in the garden. Well, you explain the garden in your own words as the garden is a pilgrimage, an intentional act to cultivate a garden that is grounded in love, a reverential offering to humanity. Yeah. And so it's, there's a, it's a practice of devotion. It's a devotional practice. Mm -hmm. And it's everything I believe about humanity. But that's very interesting because all throughout history and in many different cultures, the garden has had this spiritual significance. It's the, it's the location of the creation myth in Christianity, for example, and uh, also in Christianity, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus agonized in prayer before being arrested and crucified. And you explain that you also, you've also had your trials and the garden came from, from what I understand, it, it comes from, well, it comes from a place of crisis, as you've just explained. Yeah. I mean, and I felt almost crucified by this trauma that hit us. And I can't share it because it's, it, it was all in the family courts with my ex-partner. And so you can't share anything that happens in the family court. Mm. Because we have to protect the children. But then and there's, there's some, some traumas don't, don't need to be qualified. And this one really this one really doesn't, but what it taught me was that I had a voice and that I had to stand up. Mm-hmm. I had to stand up for my children. And but what what was really important for me is that I had to believe I had agency. I had to really um trust that I could do it. And so the growth and the development that I went through somehow somehow was reflected in the work in the garden. It was an extraordinarily powerful process that took me to the edges that I never thought I would ever go to. And so when we were cultivating that garden, I mean, we had 12 weeks to turn that garden round because it was now February, March, April, February, when we decided to do it. So we had to just kind of, in in the kind of really in the depths of the winter take off all that grass and I mean it was just like a field but small field obviously we had to learn about um, biodynamic gardening about sourcing locally about organic gardening about and at the same time I'm kind of in the middle of this court case and um And as we began, as we developed the garden, I was um, beginning to really, for the first time in my life, embody and be the person I really wanted to be and needed to be. And so this is extraordinary kind of, um, kind of seamless uh, relationship with the work that we were making with what was happening to me and my children. And um, and at the same time, people were coming past, walking their dogs and going to the river, looking, observing what we could see in the garden because it was all visible. And they were beginning to form a relationship with all these people walking past. 
they were saying kind of, what are you up to? You know, just watching the garden begin to change. And we were saying, we're going to make this garden so incredible and fill it with flowers. And some people were kind of, you know, we listened to cynicism and all sorts of stuff. But what happened was we just believed in it. We believed in our vision. And we had a purpose. Mm-hmm. So we built these extraordinary structures. So we had the height. I mean, they were, I mean, and we, we, we're building them right now. We, I've been making them for the last few days. These extraordinary huge structures and the boys but bringing up huge trunks from the riverbed and dragging them up to the garden. So it was very sculptural. And we were just growing thousands of different, you know, we had all these seeds going off. So we've got this big pot of the garden. We were identifying all the flowers that we wanted. I could go on forever telling you about this. <laughs> Please do. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so we identified, so we were growing and growing and growing. So we were also growing flowers, but we and but we also identified the annuals that we wanted, you know, the poppies and the cornflowers and the whatever else that's annual. I can't remember. They were all being sown into the garden and then we were building in layers of all this other planting. And there's this wonderful um, conservationist called Jake Fines. And I did, I photographed him for the New York, New Yorker. They did a big feature on him. The guy's a genius. He's brilliant. He's just had a book out called The Landed Healer. And he, um, I spent the whole day with him. He runs this um, estate, the biggest, largest estate, conservation estate in the country or estate anyway, called um, Holcomb Manor. And he described a story, and I think it's in his book, but he told me there anyway, and he said something like, I'm so crap at remembering stories, but I remembered the energy of the story, more importantly. And he said he was on the marshes, and he said normally when these, you know, um, geese take off, 200, 300, I don't know, thousands, they just, you know, there's a few birds to take off. On this occasion, there were like thousands and there was this lift off of these birds taking off. And it was a nature moment. And he turned around to his colleague who was standing next to him at the time and said, did you get that? And she was crying. And, some, and I really remembered that story. And somehow that translated in the garden. Because we were creating this garden there was almost no grass except for me to take pictures from. You had this kind of really huge immersive space with all these kind of climbers of gourds and beans and sunflowers and poppies. I mean, everything's crammed full. And we calibrated everything, the colours and the um, when they were going to come out at the same time. It was chemistry. We were, we were making chemistry. And when you make, and we make chemistry. And so when everything just kind of popped at the same, same time, then people came. We didn't have to do anything. People just came from everywhere. So it was another transmission. It's incredible. It's incredible what happened because they're all invested in the story in the garden. They're all talking to us all the time. Mm-hmm. Over the garden wall. 
which became, you know, I said in the in in my in the statement, it became also like a confessional space, and also people had been masked up for ages and indoors. But there was this parameter wall, which meant they could speak to us and feel safe about the virus. But what happened was, we so said when the flowers popped, it was like there was nothing we had to do because nature was just kind of it was doing its thing. So there was something deeply organic about the process of nurturing and cultivating this garden. Absolutely. We were just being led by it. Yeah, it's a beautiful feeling when you Oh my God, it was so good. It was really intense. I mean, my son and I kept falling out. Stuff was going on for him and I had to go through this hideous court case. And, you know, the work was also about me uh, and him finding a way through so many complicated layers of our relationship you know it was kind of that was part of the work it was kind of super intense <laughs> but it was really an intense time and I you know and as we were kind of it was an intense time so the the garden is the foreground and it's backgrounded by this landscape of turmoil and crisis yeah but it was like, anyway, my mind's full of all this stuff at the moment because I'm writing, writing, writing. But it was like, you know. Yeah, be careful you don't plagiarise yourself then. Yeah, really. <laughs> I think what happened to me, the, the crisis, the trauma that had to, happened to me was exactly 49 days. Exactly 49 days. When my son came home from the monastery, he said to me, to me, did you, do you remember the bardo is 49 days? And the bardo in Tibetan Buddhism is the moment between death and rebirth. And when between death and rebirth, then you can, um, you have the choice to really understand and uh, your suffering, to resolve it, to clear it. And it's kind of, it, and it's a place where you can choose what to take with you. And in many ways in life, in a lifetime, you know, in, in, in living time, mm -hmm. we can do that all the time, can't we? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, but there's also parallels with the, the book of Genesis as well. You know, yeah. our, where our innocence, the garden is a place where our innocence is stolen from us. But at the same time, um, it, still, it still carries the promise of, of redemption one day. Well, I'm really more interested in, anyway, I'm pretty a bit rambly about it no, because I'm that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but it's what's important is okay. So the forty-nine days is actually when something when and when a trauma happens. For example, everything that you understand about life in that moment is severed. Is it not? Mm -hmm. It's just severed as you were trying to kind of recalibrate and make sense of it. We can um, how we process that trauma is the interesting bit. What we take with us, or what we choose to leave behind that we don't need. Mm -hmm. In this case, I really dug deep. 
And I really dug deep as I really began to use this trauma as a way of, it became my teacher. What is it that I need to know and see about myself and see about the world, see about my family? What can I learn? And the garden became the 50th day. This is what I chose to understand about it. Mm -hmm. And what I chose to understand is I have absolute faith in humanity. Mm -hmm. I have absolute faith that um, we can overcome difference. Yeah. So when people stepped into the garden, their kind of sense of self, who they believed they were, fell away. Hence, there's a lot of nudity in the garden. I never ask one person to take off their clothes in the garden. So, but you th- has it become somewhat of a tradition, though? No. No, <laughs> that's a good so- question, though. <laughs> it's a really good question because, I mean, it's quite funny because, you know, I had, I've got this chair which I found on, you know, Facebook Marketplace. It was going for refurbishment and I just got it and put it in the garden. I thought, that's my chair for the garden. But my hairdresser would come around and she'd say, oh, she's a photograph of me. And then she said, oh, can I take my clothes off? So I'd say, all right then. And then every time she came around and did my hair, she just got in, she went into the garden and we did the session together. So she's in the series. And, you know, it just kept happening. So perhaps it is a tradition, but people actually were very moved. Mm-hmm. Like they felt like they could. I'm really interested in why they felt like they could. It's a very classical motif, though, as well. It is, yeah. But I mean, I remember. I mean, one of my close friends, and he, he never really shares his emotional world. You know, he doesn't, and he cried when he stepped into the garden. So what what have you had any specific experiences in the garden that are very what kind of what has it taught you about human emotion and desire and behavior and are there any specific experiences that you can draw upon I think there were so many Every single person that came in the garden something happened mm mm-hmm. Interestingly, the only people, oh, no one's been in the garden and not been photographed. That's really odd to me. Yeah. And then there have been, you know, it's been, it's felt like a very democratic space, that there's, there's, there's space for everybody and everyone. I mean, the first couple I photographed, there's two girls and they just met each other and they were crazily in love. You know, it was just like the first 48 hours together. And they said, would you photograph us? And I said, yes, okay. And I said, but can, can we take our clothes off? And actually it's quite funny because I had this guy decorating my house over the last that four week preceding that moment. And he was seeing us, me and Luke, you know, really at it in the garden, all weathers. I mean, it was quite grueling work trying to clear it so we could get the seeds in on time and everything. And he, we said, oh, well, you're making gardens so we can photograph people in. And then he cycled on the way home and he walked past these two girls naked on top of each other in my garden. And he said, oh, mate, is that what you're doing? <laughs> so, so I said, did, yeah, that's what we're doing. Did they meet in the garden? I think I know the photograph you're talking about. Yeah, you do. Yeah, no, they didn't meet in the garden, but they had just met just before. 
And anyway, that kept happening. Mm. It just kept happening. And I didn't have to make anything happen. And it felt like everyone that I photographed was meant to be there. So I didn't really have to go and look. People just kept coming. So it's a place where you let things be. I think so. It's the, it's it's kind of it feels like something about non-duality. It's like mm-hmm. I can bring all of myself here. You know how we make our home in other people and give away our intellect and give away our, you know, our um, different aspects of who we are. It's like you can hold that and you can hold that in the garden. It feels like everything is yeah. there. You know, it's, it's it resembles a place where. We become what we are only in our relation to other people. Yeah, absolutely. But there's all. It's also. There's also. It's a. It's a very overgrown garden, or so it seems. You just. You're letting the garden be as well. You're letting the flowers be. The plants absolutely be. Absolutely not. What really? Absolutely not. People say to us all the time, "Oh, did you chuck a load of seeds in?" It's like, and. and so there's more design there. Then appears. Oh my God, this garden is so well designed. <laughs> it's like, it's so well designed because I understand exactly where the light works in that garden. I know where it rises, where it falls. I know all the weather conditions. I know exactly what happens and I know exactly where to photograph people from. And so the whole garden has been designed around light, around colour and you know, it's like my my son is like the, you know, he's like the art director. So it's been designed around chance, in a way. There's no chance. But you, the, you, you're, you never know what the light's going to be like on, at a well, particular I do know, hour. But I know where the light moves from because of, I, I know where the sun rises and falls. and. So you have this so, intuitive understanding of the space. Well, I've worked, yeah, I did, I've got intuitive understanding, but of course, after the first year, I knew, I know exactly what it does. And so, but I also, my colour palette's also important. So I'm growing particular flowers with a colour palette. And it's the whole thing is kind of, um, there's, 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 it's, it's very intentioned. Yeah. If you, anyway, I wish you could come see my garden. Anyways, we... Ben- in what way does it resemble the classical image of the English cottage gar- cottage garden? It doesn't. Yeah, so. It doesn't. It looks chaotic, but it's not. Yeah, I suppose that's that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It does look, it, but it's actually um, very considered. So this year we are, you know, along that wall, we are raising the... Um, you know, we're putting more earth in. And so we are growing particular gourds that will climb over the wall onto the path. And we're growing these huge structures with ropes going across where big trompetinos and, you know, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. And um, so yesterday, so this week we're sowing. Um. But that is the kind of living philosophy of the work. It's about humanity and it's about... Um, but it's deeply about yourself as well. Of course, of course it is. And it's from where I came from as a child and my absolute lack of connection and belief that I was 
um, I could be in this world. Mm. I think we all, I think we all look for that at some point. Yeah, we all do. But, uh, you know, I have done enormous amount of work through practice and through prayer and through psychotherapy and acupuncture. I, I, I work relentlessly about being well because I know what it feels like to feel very unwell. And alienated. Yeah, alienated from myself, actually. Yeah. There's been periods in my life where I've certainly feel felt alienated. This sense of everything's going well, but everything's not going well. You know, it's like on the surface, everything yeah. seems okay, but you lack this sense of belonging and purpose. And Of course. And, you know, like the guy in my garden who I met down the river and he taught, said he'd been cross-dressing and he's my age. And I knew him from Brighton many years ago. And he said, I've been cross-dressing and I haven't ever come, I haven't come out. And I said, well, bring your clothes to the garden and I'll photograph you. So that the, you know, and so, or the mother that brings her child to my garden, and she's so disabled. So she's in a wheelchair, you know, quite profoundly. And she, her mother said, I just want to see her body without it looking or without it, you know, she's got a very functional, practical relationship with her daughter. Mm -hmm. She has to chew feed her daughter. And I want to be able to look at her body. Mm -hmm. As my daughter. And so I photographed them naked in the garden. Mm -hmm. We took her out of her wheelchair. And it was so moving. I cried. Oh, I think I know that. Yeah, I think I know the image now. Because, there's no, because there's, no, there's no wheelchair in the image, you know? No, we, we, we picked her up. And you can see the feeding, her, her um, I forget what you call them now. But anyway, and it was such a moving piece of work. And those stories kept happening and happening. My friend's son, family, they came. And the little boy in the picture, he's 11, he's recently um, uh, passed away. And he was Alice's very close friend through school. So and, Alice is your daughter? Yeah. And that picture, and, and I was... At the, Torrin's funeral only a few months ago. And he died from sepsis. And, you know, I have this photograph of all of them in the garden. And the composer, Vladimir Schut, leaving the garden with his wife, he also passed away. Very, you know, um, Months after that picture, he was a, a Ukrainian composer and she's a pianist. And then there was also kind of, you know, intense joy as well coming into the garden. You know, it kind of like mm. traversed the whole spectrum. So there's a of, real better sweetness there. It's just life. I yeah. think I didn't compartmentalize the bittersweetness. It's just life. You know, it absolutely. Um, it's my dog shaking next to me. It just... It it just it was just life, in a kind of non-dualistic sense, you know, in this kind of non-dualistic democratic sense. Mm -hmm. It is a metaphor for love. It is just, you know, it is a metaphor, as I wrote in the statement for the human heart. 
So it's a space where appearance and disappearance collapse in on one another. Absolutely. So we all feel alienated and disconnected, even though we try our damnedest hardest, you know, not to reveal that. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a, there is a latent grief to some of these images now, at least. Yeah, but you know, for that family, they have those pictures and, you know, photography can feel very intrusive. And we know that as photographers, especially, you know, you know, portrait photographers mm -hmm. have to really question our motivation for making that work. But when he died very suddenly, it was through sepsis, you know, they said, can we see the photographs? And then, it, it, you know, and I, I managed to take about three or four rolls of film of this beautiful boy and his family that they will have forever. So it's not just a work of art, it's also an archive as well. All of it is an archive of this time, this really, really important time. We've seen this huge paradigm shift in consciousness over the last few years. And it's definitely um, an archive of that. You know, that we're exhausted with suffering, we're exhausted with um, conflict and wars and what our criminal politicians are up to. Mm -hmm. We are exhausted with that. We have no faith in our politicians. Absolutely. We, don't, we do not believe in them. You know, it's very political for many years. But that, that can sometimes become, that way of thinking can also sometimes verge in a dangerous nihilism too. So it's it's... It's important in my, in, at least in myself, to try and find a balance between, well, they're just human too. And whereas, you know. I, I kind of disagree with you. Actually, they're human, but they have a responsibility and they're not, and they're not taking care at the moment. I mean, mm. we've seen, I mean, I'm not, we, we do understand what's going on. We've seen it in our, in our immigration policy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a long time since I wept. Mm -hmm. Sending them to Rwanda yeah. was, was. I mean, I don't know how anybody could formulate that. And actually, I was talking to one. Absolutely, yeah. And they were actually, um, someone was telling me that was the, the, um, the, uh, this kind of reasonable version of what they were actually intending to do was so much worse. So, you know, just, so anyway, what I'm saying to you is I have no faith in politics. I have no faith, faith in these criminals. And... Mm -hmm. So there is a hopelessness, even even though the work is grounded in hope. There's that non-duality there of hope and hopelessness, the two sides of the fence. Do you know what? I don't even believe that either. They are doing that, but I do believe. I mean, I guess what I believe, I believe in nature because nature is beautiful and it just wants to be beautiful. We know that. Mm -hmm. Which is why, particularly after COVID, people were just going into nature. Yeah. Um, of course, I, I do feel it's criminal that if we, you know, Peter, if we see if we see anything or anyone as other as not us, then we don't have to take responsibility for it. No, absolutely. It's um, so it's really important to find a way th find a way beyond that classical binary between self and other. Absolutely. That's what I mean, and I, that's all that that's all the work is. It's about non-duality, you know. I suppose and I believe that's that's what, in a way, my work is about too. And my way yeah, of absolutely. thinking, even when I'm not taking, when I read philosophy, for example, I'm working 
I'm trying to find a way beyond myself. Yeah. And this kind of, I'm trying to rethink the constitutive role that the face of the other plays in self-understanding, that very important role that just being looked at, you know, that's acknowledging that somebody's there, which is what a portrait, portraiture practice is in a way. Yeah. I think it is too. But you're, you, you, your daughters are in this project as well. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. How, in, in what way do they feature in this project? Well, Anis doesn't want me to photograph anymore, understandably, because, you know, taking pictures is extraordinary. It's a very intense moment, isn't it? Mm -hmm. She's trying to calibrate so much in that moment. And I think she had enough. And when she said, I've had enough, go away, then I reckon it was game over. I so didn't photograph her. One but of your daughters was a project, yeah? It was a yeah, book of its own. Yeah, look, yeah, looking for Alice and, you know, but, you know, she did actually come into the garden and she sat in that chair and she looked at me and she gave me the picture. In fact, she was in, she's in about three of the pictures in the work. Um, but it's an organic process. So whoever comes into the garden, I photograph. You know, I'm not compartmentalizing it. I don't choose people. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I, I will photograph my my other daughter, Martha. You know, I made a book about Martha. So do you, um, have, you have two? You have a book about? Yeah, one, one about each of my children. And what about Luke? Well, Luke, I didn't know how to photograph Luke because he somehow used to kind of energetically not sit in my frame. I understand what that means. He just can't, I couldn't kind of reach him. But anyway, what I didn't reckon was that this, I wouldn't be um, photographing with him. I'd be collaborating. I mean, actually, I collaborated with Martha and Janice. So he is making this work with me. We talk every day about this project. We are obsessed about this project. And so Luke is a is a Buddhist. Yeah. Is he an artist as well? Yeah. He writes and he takes pictures. And we talk about it all the time. Every day we get up and we talk about this project. What it means to us, why we're doing it, how we're doing it. And um, so, yes, the book will be, it's, it's, it was both of us. Yeah, yeah. Are you still awake? <laughs> and, uh, no, I'm, I'm, thinking, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of what Johnny Rotten said, actually. Tell me, what did he say? Anger is, was it anger is an energy. Anger is an energy, yeah. You know, your, your, your moments of hopelessness, your... Your traumatic moments of hopelessness can really be the impetus for growth and change. Absolutely. Anger is the most amazing ignition for change. In fact, when I started looking for Alice, the reason why I really, that project lifted was when I found out that 
eight because of the new screening process, 86% of fetuses with um, this extra chromosome were being aborted, terminated. Yeah. And in Iceland, 100%. How, in my mind, in that explosive moment... So I that's was... the, the... You mentioned this in the Guardian article, I think, about the book, yeah, and it's or like... about that photograph. Yeah, it's that you write about a particular photograph of, yeah. of Alice in the, for the but Guardian. I was sitting in... The, I was just rowing up the Down Syndrome Society and I was just sitting in the um, corridor on my MA and I rang them up for the stats and I... Absolutely, instead of crying, crying, I was absolutely fucking furious. And mm. I thought, how am I going to tell my daughter one day that she has no, you know, yeah, that she can be aborted up until the last couple of months, mm -hmm. that she is not valid. You know, and it's like, anyway, I still don't have the words for So it. Alice was born with Down syndrome. Yeah, Alice is born with Down syndrome. And, you know, so that on its own became, it's like, actually, we need difference. And we need her. And we're trying to, um, uh, anyway. But as you suggest in that article, that entire event... Came as a bit of a shock as well. The whole thing. Yeah, of course, it was a shock. I mean, you know, I was told I had a very high probability she would um, have Down syndrome, but you know, when she was born, anyway, it became very complicated when she was born. But um, I still really didn't expect it because I didn't have the full testing. But um, So you've been, you've been, you, existence has tested you your entire life. My entire fucking life, I've been tested. Yeah. I think. And, and you're, are, you, are you thankful for, for it? Well, you know what? There are times when, my God, when you go down a hole and you have, how the fuck am I going to get out of this one? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've been And there. too many fucking holes. And, and, and what happened was, Okay, what am I got? In the end, I became deeply philosophical. Okay, what am I? What What is it you want from me now? Mm. What What's What am I learned? Uh, what am I being tested with? Mm -hmm. So that has been my saving grace. In the way, it wasn't for my siblings. Might be really um, struggling, and I think. So I was, um, I'm very willful and I was determined to be well. Yep. Really determined. And um, so I had been really tested. But actually, um, so when I talk about joy and I talk about connection, I feel it's really possible. And... Um, You know, and I run these workshops now, mm -hmm. you know, this, and it's it's called the Creative Body Process. Yeah, you had one just recently. Yeah, and I just, oh, anyway, that, that was another kind of like slight calling as well. It came to me, this kind of thing that I, I needed to do. Instead of teaching people about 
the mechanics of photography didn't seem interesting to me. And it felt felt like, ah, oh. what it felt like is they don't need to know how Sean Davey makes work because uh, I need to give them, they, they need to find their own agency in their creative process. Mm-hmm. They cannot, anyway, it'd be insulting for them if I just say, this is how you make a fucking portrait. So it felt like, um, so what I do in this process, I get in behind the scenes of themselves and look at what's getting in the way of making the work they want to make or facilitating them in their current practice, Mm -hmm. even when it's going really well to develop that. Isn't that quite a psychotherapeutic approach? Absolutely. To break down the barriers that hold us back. Yeah, and that's why I get very few men on board. <laughs> you really you think there's... Um... Yeah, I do. I think it's really yeah. tough for guys to be vulnerable, really tough. So the guys that come in, I'm just going, hallelujah, mm. you know. So um, it's really tough and it's much tougher than than really any workshop on how to make a photograph. Mm. But... I we bring in I bring in really good writers and poets that so they can bring this into form with text, mm-hmm. and they get taken out into the nighttime in the dark by this brilliant guy who does amazing work with them in the dark down the river, calling in owls and all sorts of stuff. Um, so it's like a kind of boot camp for the soul, really, for for creatives. But that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's I said um, to one of my photo friends earlier this week that the photograph, it's not so much about the photograph at the end of the day. The photograph is is, is a reference point for thought in the same way that the world itself yeah. is. You know, it's, some, it's something that should serve the, well, in the context of our conversation, it's something that serves the soul. You're absolutely right. Or, at le- or it, it inspires a question at least. Because actually, if I think about those moments in my life when I've had extreme existential doubt, um, I, I'm lucky to have been brought up in a supportive family. But if I've ever had those moments of doubt, it's um, it's deep philosophical questions about purpose and belonging and why we're here. The, yeah, absolutely. The questions that haunt us all. Things can be going so well, and yet you just feel totally alienated. There's been several times in my life and I'm, I've, I've reached a point in my life where I'm thankful because I think, Fro- uh, was it Freud said, the tough, something, I'm paraphrasing him here. Don't remember the quote exactly. But Freud says something like, the moments that were the most difficult, when you look back on them, they'll, in, in time, they'll become the most beautiful. Because of course they are. those are the times when, you know, you're at the, you you're almost at the verge that the very edge of understanding and you push the boundaries out even more and you can't help but journey to those boundaries again and again and again and yeah there is a risk there's always a risk that you might lose your mind in the process but um it's that journey it's um yeah it's about <laughs> yeah just Do you know this, what it is? we we have no idea what our potential is and we limit ourselves through fear Mm-hmm. So we, if we if we actually begin, we meet our fear, and I'm not talking about really pushing into it hard because that's not a very clever way of going about it. But if we work with fear incrementally in kindness, 
then we really begin to open and thrive. And we develop a greater witness to ourselves. But also we hear what we need to hear. And we move to places that we need to go to. And so we, 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 re, we, we have the potential to reinvent over and over and over again. You know, like my daughter at the moment, Martha, saying, oh, she, you know, she did so well at school, went to Goldsmiths, did all the rest of it, and now doesn't want to do the job that she's doing in London. She's gone travelling. And she's worried because all the kids are graduates. She said they're now lawyers, 25. Uh, you know, they've all got these kind of jobs. I said, but look, they're stuck in their jobs now. How can they get out of those jobs? He said, you actually stepped out of it and you're going to really hear what you want to be. Mm -hmm. When you stop um, looking. That's the cliche. Yeah, but that's, that's exactly right. And you just stop looking. It's like, I've got my job. And now at the age of 25, you're just looking forward to the weekend to get a break. Mm -hmm. um, and... So I think if we over, if we work with the fear, we can keep finding out. I mean, you know, I don't have enough hours in my day because I love my life so much. Because there's so much I want to do. Um, and so if you could give me some more time, that'd be really good. <laughs> but how much of your, how much of your, like process or practice, as I said earlier. I asked you if the garden was um, designed in accordance with the chance nature of of certain events, of light. How much yeah. of your practice is down to chance, those moments that reveal themselves to you? How, uh, how, big, how big is the theme of what Christians have traditionally perhaps called revelation or... Um, that mad, or as creatives, they, they describe it as that magical moment when you know, the world just becomes saturated with inspiration, for example. How, how, tell us about that. Well, those, that, you know, those are the moments I've described, aren't they? Whether it's, you know, it's about creativity. I mean, you get, I mean, I've been led to creativity. I was thinking the other day, telling my friend, oh God, you know, I still don't own a house. I don't own, own anything. And Everyone around me seemed to own a house and I don't own a house. And sometimes it makes me feel really anxious. They were selling off these properties because the estate's going bust. They've let us stay on in here. But so, you know, I've got this background of homelessness and all this anxiety around it somewhere still, not too much, but it's kind of there sometimes. And, and then here am I in this rented house and I've got this garden. That's absolutely perfect for the project, but it's a manifestation of my whole life. And I just kind of looked at it and went, oh my God, that's why I've never owned a property. Because mm -hmm. I was meant to be here. Mm -hmm. Because this, this is like the most perfect place to make this fucking work. It's like, couldn't be better. People keep telling me, how did you land here? And this, I mean, people like, might look at my house and think, oh, she's got this lovely property. It's like, no, I rent this house and I get through month to month paying my rent, really. Um, so I do believe that the work that we put into ourselves kind of raises your vibration so you can see more clearly because you're not mm. hiding behind a wall of fear. Yep. This um, is making me 
you know, the precari- the precari- precariousness of the artist's existence that you're referring to. Yeah. Um, and the impermanence and the un- and uncertainty, which are yeah. also spiritual questions and spiritual themes. They're making me think of uh, something that I thought earlier this year. Uh, I had to get a, unfortunately, I had to get a tooth removed in January. Um, yeah. And I was really disappointed about it. Yeah. But as, uh, the way that I framed it to make myself feel better about it was, Peter, if, you, if you're disappointed about losing a tooth, just remember that you'll need to lose your entire body one day. That's definitely one way <laughs> So it's the, it's not the it's not the end of the world, but you know. Hopefully, you won't be too conscious. But no, yeah. the point is that nothing there's there's nothing lasts forever, and nothing lasts forever. And I think that whole kind of territory of impermanence. Um, I guess it's our greatest teacher, isn't it? And um, but things can feel really, really permanent. Mm-hmm. We know that things can feel really, you know, things can atrophy and we can deep feel deeply positional within that. So um, if, if, um, you know, photographs are about the temporal world, you know, the world that's pass that's always passing away before our eyes. Yeah. But what can a photograph say about, uh, themes of the eternal or the infinite or these spiritual themes, the things that are permanent, the things that don't necessarily fall away, like love or for some people it might be God or what what can a photograph say about about permanence? Oh my god, I don't know. What is it I don't know if it can really. I mean it's a memory, isn't it? I think it's just a it's a I don't know. I don't think it can. I mean everything kind of you know, I'm even aware, you know, the archive I've got downstairs will disappear, I guess, apart from mm-hmm. the images that are in the V&A in the collections and wherever they are in different collections, it but will. Yeah. <laughs> even the V&A will disappear at some point. V&A will disappear. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my God, it's like I just... All we can do is live to our full capacity. Mm-hmm. But it's about trying. It's about being a flower, though, isn't it? It's about the flower will, you know, it grows, it blooms, and it and it fades, and it yeah, becomes. It does, um, and you know what happens at the end of the garden work. I'm already kind of, I'm, I'm almost mourning the loss because we're so deep in it. It's such a heart practice. My son is doing lots of food offerings. I mean, he's full, full on prayers all the time with it. And I'm sewing and I'm writing and I'm reading and harvesting memory and harvesting vision and all sorts. And And then what happens next? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So it's about resting in that impermanence. Yeah, it's a bit of a dead end question because something else will happen because, you know, next year I'll be doing lots of my workshops and because I love doing them. Mm-hmm. I just do what I love doing. And interesting enough, you know, mainly Americans come over for it and Scandinavians. Mm-hmm. 
and they're really great fun. Scandinavians are a great bunch to work with, um, as are the Americans. And um, so that keeps me alive and happy. And um, but I don't know. It would just. I just do what makes me feel well, and and I trust that things will just keep happening. And there will be future traumas as well. That's I part of the deal. My sense is, of course, there will be. But you know what happens is. If we go towards trauma, and we do it well, and we recover well, then we will um, be able to uh, meet the next one better. Mm -hmm. I think that's how it works. And what's the end? Do you have a, any idea of what the end will what what the end will be? It'll be a grand finale. I'm <laughs> crippled and old. It sounds because it just sounds quite exhausting if life is just a a series of trials for nothing. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think life is a series of moments. And at the moment, you know, I'm sitting up here hiding from my kids. I'm sitting on my bed and I'm looking outside. I can see blossom. I can hear birds. I go to sleep with the owls. That's an, they're moments, aren't they? I go swimming in the cold water in the morning in the river. And each time you have a moment, it's like a kind of waking, isn't it? And it kind of reminded that kind of glimpses of things are good. And the river is also a subject of one of your, yeah. the subject of one of your projects. Yeah, I mean, it's huge, the river. When I went through this trauma, I decided to get into the river in, in winter, where mm -hmm. it's like four degrees, because I thought if I'm going to just keep saying I can, mm -hmm. because it just felt like I couldn't. And I thought, if I say I can, and I got into the cold, and I just put my hands up, and I just said I can, mm -hmm. let myself be in the freezing cold water. It just became part of my practice. So is the garden a place of comfort, or does it remind you of those periods in your life that weren't so comfortable? I don't think it's a place of comfort. I think it's a place of... Um, Recalibration, restoration, and deeply reparative. Mm -hmm. And I think it gives me. Um, I mean, I apps. I get up every morning. Can you imagine? And people go all over the world to make work. I always find ways of being creative on my doorstep. I don't really believe that we should be running all over the world. People, you know, I really don't. Environmentally. So I'm always looking at ways of creating work. And fortunately for me, I can make it on my doorstep. Mm -hmm. I'm making work from home. People come to me. It's good. I mean, it's good. I can just be here. I mean, I've got full-time care of a child with a disability, so I can't just go to an opening of the show very easily or do that stuff. So I'm just here. Um, but... Yes, I think things are quite good. Your life's starting to sound a bit like um, the life of a saint. <laughs> I'm really enjoying my life. You know, I am knackered. I am absolutely knackered. I'm not a good sleeper. And I get up every day and there's always so much I want to do. But um, I genuinely really love it. I love being a creative. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, I'm really excited when I look through the camera. I'm really excited at what it shows me. I really love my community of creators that I'm with. We're all a bit neurodiverse, you know, and and I love the kind of the elastic mind of a creative. Mm-hmm. So to be around people that really want to share their experience and talk about their work and why it's made, it's like, oh my god, that's so good, so interesting. Yeah. Um. So I just feel very fortunate to have been taken down this path, and um. I think. Um, yeah, I just feel very fortunate. And I, I do know I work hard for that too. And I'd really like more money too. That would be good. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? But what, what, oh my God, don't we all? <laughs> but what's what's the plan for this project then? The gar- It's not yet completed, is it? Or you're hoping to exhibit at some point this year? Or- yeah. Well, it's kind of doing really quite, you know, it's in a, you know, in the French National Collection and the VNA. And so it's kind of already found, it's finding homes in collections, which is nice. And it's in awards at the moment, which is really good. Um, we'll make it into a book. And, you know, I don't know what will happen. It will just kind of find its place in land. Um, we'll actually there's a gallery here on the estate, so we're going to exhibit in the gallery here for two months, which I'm actually really excited because. Oh, that's seen. very nice, yeah. Oh my god! So why the garden is in full bloom? We've got an exhibition down here. So you're exhibiting it in the context of um, where it was yeah, made. It doesn't really get better than that. And then Alice, so I'm going to make, I just applied for an Arts Council funding to finish off the work. We're making, a, I'm making a film with Dylan Fries-Green and he's a really excellent film director. So we're making a film and we're, we're recording all the birdsong in the garden at sunrise every full moon. So this film we're making and the birdsong will be in the exhibition. And so we're, I'm going to make postcards and... Me and me and the kids are going to go and set up a little stall in town with Alice, who's going to make little fairy cakes and sell for twenty p. So she keep her happy, and so we're going to speak to the whole town about our exhibition because it's a community event. And I've got anyway. We're doing loads of stuff with disability groups and anyway, lots of stuff. So it feels really important, you know, this summer feels really good to make this work and to, and to exhibit it here. Um, it kind of doesn't get better for me than that. I mean, the work has been a kind of periphoto and APAD. And, but that's a very different forum. It's here is where it belongs. And... Um, so I've got a busy summer. I've got a busy summer. Anyway, I slightly panic on my own because I do. Can you? I'm a slightly speedy, crazy person at the moment because running these events, I do kind of mentoring. I look after four kids and one with a disability. And my 
my my life is very packed with many things that I love doing. In fact, I, I love doing it all. Um, there just needs to be about three of me. Yeah, I know the feeling. I know, it's intense life, isn't it? It's like, you know, if I could just stop for 20 minutes a day and just recalibrate, I could do that, but I choose not to. Yeah. And I choose not to. And so you're My, doing photographic mentoring? Yeah, I, I mentor students. Through a, through a school or through an esta establishment? No, no, no. No, no, just through my Instagram account. Oh, All right. people say, can you mentor me? So it's private mentorship. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I also do quite a lot of free work for people. Yeah, yeah. You well, know. Once so the bills have been but, paid. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I do it anyway. I just find time, you know. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm working with a girl in Iran. For obvious reasons, I'm not going to charge her and... People come to me. If I just sometimes I just I'll come to my house and I'll look at your work. Yeah, but I think that's really, really beautiful as well. Um because that's that's actually what I miss the most about studying is having this access to a community, this network of of photographers. Yeah. And that was I said this to Alice Tomlinson as well, that that was one of the motivations for starting this podcast um was just to try and you know it was to yeah see beyond myself so to speak it gives you it gives you an excuse to meet uh to meet and speak with really interesting people as well it's just like the camera i was asked once reese quite recently about how do you think the camera opens up the world for you you know what kind of access does the camera give you and i said it gives me an excuse to walk to the top of a mountain in the in reference to my own practice that, yeah. I, per, that I perhaps wouldn't go to otherwise or I wouldn't have the same yeah I wouldn't have the same mission so to speak and it's the same as you know as these these a camera or a microphone can be it's just a tool for dialogue and you know or creating connections and i think that's really important um building building think, networks yeah and and i it's just for me it's just about connection you're making connection with the mountain you're making connection with someone it's just forming kind of joining the dots it's forming pathways and maps and you know and connections and but you have to mobilize yourself you have to find your legs to do it Mm -hmm. And this is what I had on the second episode. I had um, a British anthropologist, the British anthropologist Tim Ingold, who I referenced right. a lot in my thesis. He's yeah a big point of reference to me in my thought. And he said that I asked him about his worldview as well, and he also spoke of paths. How important paths are. Um, yeah, absolutely. How he emphasised the the importance of the journey and being open to that journey and listening and being attentive to the world. And he's not a photographer, but he obviously goes to, well, he, he, he did similar research in landscapes that I've been to, such as Lapland, where I make some of my work. And um, he went there as an anthropologist to ask how do humans and human and animals relate to one another? 
um, in the context of Sami reindeer herding communities and how even the reindeer are almost like citizens of the Sami society as well because the Sami are so dependent on their migratory movements. And through that, that's well, that was a starting point. That was his doctoral thesis in the 70s. But um, I go to these same places as a photographer, but it's still the same mode of being attentive, of letting the world tell you something and yeah. not, not imposing your ideas on it. You know, let, letting yeah. the world open up to you. Um, sitting at the top of a mountain waiting for something to happen. Yeah, wait, you're, as a photographer, in terms of my practice, you're waiting for something to happen, in a sense. Well, I think you've got to just be available, haven't you? And if you just keep shutting on the doors, yeah. you're just not so the more like you're available and you're work and you're on that path and you're processing and you're available, you're listening in, then you don't know where you're going to go. And then there's this relationship between availability and presence that some philosophers yeah. speak about as well. Absolutely. They're not they're not the same thing, but sometimes we conflate the two. You know, yeah. it's how we approach our subject matter that determines how it becomes available to us. Um. I yeah, and the questions we ask of it and what we expect to find there. And then in turn, those answers can lead us to other places that we could never have anticipated. Absolutely, we just have to be just feel it. I mean, it's not terribly complicated. But, I mean, if anyone, to... list, if anyone was to listen to our conversation right now, <laughs> they were probably going to think it sounds very complicated. But I, well. think when, I, think when, I think when you accept that, I think when you accept that life is complicated, yeah. it... There's this, it becomes simple. You 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 begin to rest yeah. in that that complexity of it all. Yeah, I mean, I I know I do overthink it. I, I you know I just um, but it is very simple, and um, and then there is also living. Um, I have to make a living. I just don't want to. I'd rather just make work. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, God, it's so frustrating. Anyway, I think we, I think we all feel like that. All <laughs> artists, but I know. I mean, it's like I get off some really nice work, and part is like, I just want to make my own work. Yeah, yeah. Can't just do that. But I mean, you're a teacher, so you make money teaching. Well, yeah, mentoring. And you do the uh, workshops as well. I do the workshops, but I have to run a family of on my own. It's, it's a lot, and fund my practice in filmmaking. But you know, I do believe. I mean, the money just does come, and um, and things just happen. Thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, mean, I, I have, but it's, it is hard work. And I know it's hard work for most artists. Most of us aren't privileged. Mm -hmm. Are we? Most people, are, you know, have to go to extraordinary lengths to um, find the funding. Yep. To do it. And even if you've started in a privileged position, you'll sooner or later find yourself in, in a less privileged position situation if you decide to be an artist <laughs> well yeah i know i mean some people are funded aren't they all their lives and but i think for most of us it's um 
it's a challenge. Absolutely. But it's, I think, the most rewarding challenge of being a creative. I think it's essential to be a creative. Yeah, it's, there's a certain, it's, it's, a, it's a certain pursuit of truth. Oh my God, it's, yeah, I think it's the ultimate pursuit of truth. And I think, um, you know, so much of the work that I've made that I don't really know what it means. It comes, you know, the making of the work preempts the meaning. And, and then I can see, as, as I have done recently through an interview with, uh, with this organization called Memory Cult, and someone asked me a question. And it completely unleashed or unlocked its meaning in about a piece of work I'd made. And it was like, and I was just, it was just so extraordinary that I'd made that work years before and then the meaning came to me so much later. And then I keep finding that my unconscious self is trying to resolve past conflict or show me something through my practice. And, um, and it's extraordinary. We have to make work. Mm -hmm. But the work's not enough. I mean, you say that you write as well. So the work isn't... The, the, again, I, it comes back to what I said about the images. They're only strong, so, so strong if, they're, if they become a point of reference, in my opinion, for something grander. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, I mean, you write a lot. Yeah. But what, what, do, what do you write about? Well, I just write about what this, you know, I'm just constantly writing about um, what's coming up for me, my diaries, my dreams, interpreting the work, consolidating all that kind of material. It's a very self-reflective. Yeah, really. Yeah, it is. And... Um, because then I can lay it to rest. There is something about completion and, you know, resolving mm -hmm. it. Completion. It's the kind of thing that if you were to tell it to anyone, though, even if they were to look at, look at the words on the page, they wouldn't understand any of it, though, because it's you know, such it's an like, internal journey, that kind of. Yeah. And even you, even, even me, if I was to think of, think back on things or questions that I've asked myself or things that I've written, I sometimes don't understand anymore what I was trying to say. So, you, you know, <laughs> It's, uh, but I think it's really important, you know, those are, they're like stepping stones to, to further understandings and deeper, are, yeah. deeper possibilities about what the work can become more. Well, what it does is similarly when you're making work, it's kind of you're naming something somewhere, you're kind of laying it down. And there was a continual laying down of something and naming it. The naming comes later, but you're laying something down. And we've got no idea, really, consciously, what we're up to. Not really. We think we have. And so, you know, when I'm mentoring, I just kind of, you know, illuminate, help them illuminate, you know, what they've been up to. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what people don't really, um, what they don't really understand about their own practice. So you just, it's a, it's a practice of asking them questions then. Partly, yeah. How is and it encouraging them to ask their own questions to themselves yeah, too. That's it. Just facilitating kind of the inquiry, I guess, into why they were there, what happened, what was important. 
why you chose to put that in the frame or or exclude that or include that and it goes on and on and it's like okay that's why I was making work about poverty over there or that area of mental health because actually I remembered that happened Mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand it anyway it feels quite good honestly to say that my life feels um I'd never say content, but it feels very full and quite happy. So there's a certain level of peace to it at the moment. Yeah, I'm, I've never, no, no, but I've never been able to say that. So when I say it, it's not because I'm smug in it or my life is consistently like this. It feels kind of um, fairly robust, like I have some sense of fulcrum, mm-hmm. which I haven't had before. And so the garden is a reflection of that. God, it's definitely a reflection of that. And, um, yeah, I think so. That it, that life doesn't feel like uncompartmentalizing life uh, at all. So there's, yeah, there's a real open uh, feeling of openness. Yeah. Your heart, your heart does not feel like a fist at the moment. No, it feels like... Um, my heart feels generally kind of, um, no, it doesn't. But I just feel quite formless, actually. This kind of just lovely, in a lovely place of making work, feeling a bit tired, over stretched with family and keeping it all together, but in a kind of lovely creative place, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, and enjoy it while he's enjoy it whilst you can yeah, totally that's what i think and you know what i think i think we often don't enjoy it when we have it yeah yeah do you know that and i think i think that's kind of how it is just enjoy it even even for brief moments i think but mm. my kids will probably tell you that i'm really stressed out ahead and and um might differ with what I'm saying. Um, but anyway. Well, yeah, it's been we, a very interesting conversation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure if you're going to edit this down of any would want to listen to this, me rambling on for hours. Um, I think it's, I think it's quite good. Um, you know, when we, when we listen to photographers, mm. there's a lot said about the process and the, what it means to carry a camera or use a camera or um, being in the dark room. And it's actually quite nice to listen to someone just talk about their attitude to life. And then you can see how that manifests in, in the images that they create as well. You can kind of put, put them together and the meaning of both becomes deeper through that relationship. But it's seamless, isn't it? Seamless. I am my work. Mm Mm-hmm. That's it. It's pretty zen, isn't it, really? Yeah, I yeah. am a And so when you see my work, you know who I am. And I think yeah. a lot of people are, are also looking for that. It can be so nice just listening to another person speak about their life. Because yeah. there's, 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 we, we realise that we've got quite a lot in common. When, you know, we've all got our difficulties, we've all got our joys. Absolutely. We're all, we're all in it together. And if we could calm down a bit, just calm down a bit. Yeah. 
Um, but often we're not annoyed. Often it's not what annoys. It's if we think it's a person that's annoying us. Sometimes you do get very annoying people and very difficult people. But sometimes, oh, you know sometimes it's our idea of that person. Yeah, it's that, what we project upon that yeah. person. And that's but why it's know, so important to to talk to one another and find common ground and yeah. build a dialogue with people. About, absolutely. The great thing about work, having a workshop like that, when we're talking in depth about our creative practice and who we are, when we really dig down, we realise every single person in the group becomes our teacher and every person's um, mm-hmm. place in the group makes the whole and is important. And I've never had a group where people haven't have separated out into small colleagues. Mm. But that's what they say in Zen as well. Um, that the student can also become the master. Absolutely. And they all become each other's masters and teachers. And they all I mean, it's quite incredible when you get that kind of uh and you know, and now we know when they finish their groups, they're in contact, they're sharing work, they're moving their practice forward. Um, there's a real sense of solidarity and I think creatives need that sense of solidarity and um, because making work can feel deeply problematic because we've got to really um, uh, do a deep dive into our soul and clear quite profound obstacles at times. Many people aren't prepared to make that journey at all. No, they don't. They give up or they look outside themselves on the internet for an idea to make a bloody series about. And I always say, get off the screens. Or they turn to drugs or sex or... Yeah, all the good things. And (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, I've done that. And so I know I'm not missing out now. And um, so (laughs) I... (laughs) Anyway, we've got to stop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Back to um, the domestics. It's never far away in my life. No, but that's. I mean, apparently, well, when Jesus was born, Joseph was on his way to pay his taxes. So, you know, the mundane is everywhere. <laughs> yeah, the mundane is everywhere. <laughs> so it's quite um, everywhere. But yeah, it's been a very, a, a very interesting to hear about your practice and have a deeper insight into the life that you come from and your attitudes and how that all reveals itself within the photography. Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you. Do you have faith in God? Well, the fact that I've paused probably says a lot, but um, no, I, I don't really know what that question means, to be honest. That's, you know. Yeah. I grew up as a, a fervent atheist and I realised that that rationalist way to view the world, that hyper-scientific way to view the world is, doesn't, eventually doesn't get you very far. And um, it can be quite restrictive, but it took me the best part of three decades to, to learn that. I mean, I was similar, I was brought up as, as, as an atheist, but I kept going sitting in churches all the time. And I realised it was actually, I didn't realise I did have a strong faith. I was just trying to reject it. So you, would you, what would you call, what Christians call God? Are you, do you believe in God in the Christian sense? I in, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Because they call it different things in different traditions. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know what it is, but I do believe in God and I do believe in spirit and I do. But um, I'm just very easy with it, unlike most people, but I'm very easy with it. And, so if you um, believe in God, do you believe in Satan? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> you know, I don't, you know what? But then, wouldn't that wouldn't that be non-dual? Because yeah, the if you accept the if you accepted Satan, then that would be non-dualistic way of thinking because there'd be God and then there'd be <laughs> yeah, Satan. Yeah, very true. <laughs> I tried not to uh, overcomplicate it. I've got too many things to think about, and um, so I tried to be really zen about it all. But uh, and it's kind of served me well. Well, St. Augustine said that if you think you understand God, then you don't understand God. So it's very, it's, that's, it's very good to keep an open mind. Um, I think it's very good to keep an open mind. And um, I think it's important, you know, I just keep an open heart, really. That's my practice. And, so when uh, you say that everyone is welcome in your garden, you really mean yeah, it? Yeah, I really mean it, yeah. So it doesn't matter what they believe um where no, they've but come you know, from no i do and i do believe that but what's interesting is the people that need to be there will come that's very different in terms of even with the creative body process nobody actually knows why they're coming they see a bit of blurb i've got people coming from australia america all over the world for the workshop and i said do you know why you come they don't even know what we do on the workshop but they know they need to be there. But it seems like you've 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 really been through the fire, and have, and have a lot of a lot of insights to give. Perhaps people can feel that. I th well, hopefully they can feel that. I mean, what I'm really hoping is that people feel their intrinsic health and well-being, mm -hmm. and that they're important. Mm -hmm. And but at the same time, it goes back to your practice as a psychotherapist or just psychotherapy in general it's not about giving someone the answers it's about letting them find the answers on their own path absolutely which is why i don't teach them anything but you facilitate I, an I air facil of questioning I, yeah i i facilitate uh yeah i facil that's that is my real facilitator mm-hmm I don't tell them anything. But I mean, that must have come from decades of being a psychotherapist. That's decades of working, but also I get the group, I get them, I use, I, I, I enable the whole group to be each other's teacher. Mm -hmm. So I'm really letting go. I'm just, I'm keeping out the way. And I think that's, there's so much in the art world, there's so many egos and there's there's, so there's um egos out there it's really it's it's painful to watch it and these courses where you go and pay two and a half grand to do a course absolutely and you know i'll have to put mine up at some time but i'm going to try and find a way not mm -hmm. to but it's uh, there's a lot of um in the art world there seems to be a lot of this pick your fighter pick who you are and run with it but yeah really and I don't, I'm not interested in that. I mean, it's about, photography for me is about seeing beyond myself, not not always letting go of myself, but broadening my horizons, seeing beyond myself, knowing that 
knowing that my way of looking is not the only way of looking. Absolutely. And, um, and actually, the more I carry on, the more I care less. Mm -hmm. I do really care less. You know, I got, I just kind of care less. But perhaps that's the recipe for your success. Yeah, I mean, I don't get too involved out there. I just make work. I do what's important. And you're authentic to yourself. Yeah, I'm really authentic to myself. And um, they really and care. That comes across in the work. Yeah, I hope so. And I really do. I really care about my, my children and my practice and the people I work with in my workshops. I really care. And um, and I, that's it. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, people can do what they want. So much of it, I look at them, it doesn't make any sense to me what people get up to, but you know, my life didn't make sense to me a lot of the time and I still did it. <laughs> so, you know, we just keep unraveling and backing ourselves into corner and then coming out again. And I just did that for a long time. So I think that. Um... Well, if I use another dental analogy, um, you have to go into the dentist, go onto the dentist chair and embrace and, and embrace the experience as if it was an adventure of a lifetime and your whole perception of it changes you know you're going to feel that you're going to feel the anxiety you're not going to it's not very pleasant to have um all these objects in your mouth but there's a there's a certain air of adventure to it and there's an, there's a certain excitement and when things get wild um in our minds as well sometimes you just have to yeah, it can be very alienating. It can be very anxious. Uh, it can be, you can lose your grip on reality. Sometimes things can become quite dis disorientating, but it, it's all about having this, carrying this attitude of enjoy it as if it was an adventure and it'll be over soon and the sun will begin to rise again before you know it. And that's, that's, that. <laughs> that's how I make my images too. I mean... I make my images on these, sometimes I hike for hundreds of kilometres with my camera on my back, my backpack. And, you know, I've had tendonitis on these hikes and you just have to keep on walking. And wow. I've almost lost my life crossing rivers, waist deep in rivers with 20 kilograms on my back. 70% of the time you have these massive doubts, <laughs> like, what am I doing here? I'm all alone. Yeah. I've not had signal for three days. Um, and if I go missing you know, well, if I go missing, I go missing. There's a sense of kind of, there's a kind of fatalism to it as well. But yeah, really, you just have to enjoy the adventure. And then you you come across a mountain and you find a bot, what we call in Scotland, a bothy and yeah, bothy. just an yeah. open mountain cabin. And you're there, it's seven o'clock in the evening. You open the door, it creaks. It smells damp. There's mold on the ceiling. And you think, oh, well, it'll do. It's not It's not a tent. It's better than a tent. And it's oh. only for one night. And you think you're going to spend the whole night there alone. And then two hours later, a stranger walks in. And before you know it, you're having all these, some of the some of the best conversations I've had in these places oh, good. with uh, people I've only just met. And oh, it's, again, it's what, it's, it's, it's going back to what you said about your workshops. It's, it's, you meet the people who, you build these spaces for a certain type of person 
And you don't actually, you don't need to invite them necessarily. They will come because they have the, they have the same interests as you. They're, they're as, they're as crazy as you are to be out there. Yeah. And because they need to be there. It's part of their journey to meet you. Mm -hmm. You had to go all the way out to this bothy and walk hundreds of miles to meet this person. You were mm. meant to meet that And it person. may only, it only, it, the, you may only ever see, spend a night yeah, with them. Yeah, so true. But it can be so transformative, that conversation or that encounter. I've got to go now. Yeah, well, let's end it on that. Let's end it on that. All right. Lovely. Yeah. Um, good luck with everything. And I'm sure we'll <laughs> sure we'll speak soon at some point. Yeah, stay in contact. All right. Thank you very much, Shan. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Bye, love. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Shan Davey. If you enjoyed our discussion, please consider clicking the follow button to stay notified of any future episodes. Until next time, thanks again from me, Peter Holiday. <laughs>